All right, well, hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Uh, We're jumping back into the book of Genesis today. Uh, If you're new or newer to our church, over the last three weeks, we've been in a series on prayer, but last September, we started what will be about a year-long study on Genesis. And so today, we're going to pick it back up where we left off in Genesis 18, all right, Genesis chapter 18. Well, every night before bed, we read the Bible with our daughters, And just recently, we read the story of Achan in the book of Joshua. And if you don't know about Achan, uh, Achan was this man who blatantly disobeyed God right after the nation of Israel conquered the city of Jericho. You can read about it in Joshua 6 and 7, okay? God gave his people very clear instructions. He told them, do not take anything for yourselves from that city. Well, our boy Achan decided instead of taking nothing, he would take an expensive cloak about five pounds of silver, and a little over a pound of gold. And as a result of his disobedience, the entire nation was punished. Okay, Israel went quickly into battle against another city called Ai, and they got their tails kicked, okay? All because this one man disregarded the word of God. Well, we get to the end of that story, and my seven-year-old daughter Rowan speaks up, and she says, Daddy... Why did everybody get in trouble if only one guy did something wrong? And I said, babe, that's a great question. You should ask your mom. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, parents, in all seriousness, if you want to grow in your knowledge and understanding of the Bible, just read it with your kids, okay? Like, they're bound to ask you hard questions that will force you to dig deeper. Now, listen, in all honesty, I didn't tell her to ask her mom. Here's how I explained it. I said, babe, it's kind of like when daddy was playing sports growing up. If one guy on my team did something wrong, the whole team got punished for it. And then I told her about this one guy that played on my middle school basketball team. This guy was big and he was strong, but he was slow, all right? Like, just to give you perspective, he played offensive tackle on our football team. No offense to the offensive tackles out there, but you guys typically aren't the greatest runners, okay? But listen, at the end of our basketball practices, our coach would always line us up on the baseline and he would make us run sprints, uh, more specifically these things called suicides. They were awful, if you know what they are. Uh, you, you get what I'm saying. But he would stand there with a stopwatch and he would time us and every guy on the team had to finish in a certain amount of time. And if we didn't all finish, we all got to run again. Well, guess who had a hard time finishing? Yeah, my friend, Mr. Offensive Tackle, right? And I I can still to this day remember practices where we would be screaming at him, run! Like if we have to run again because of you, we're going to kill you. And so I said to my daughter, it's kind of like that. Now, fortunately, she accepted my explanation and we moved on. But look, I, I know for a lot of people where we live today, that type of explanation is really difficult to swallow and move on from. Okay, in other cultures, this makes perfect sense, that the actions of an individual can and does affect the entire community. But in our culture, where we are today, we tend to be so individualistic in our thinking that a lot of people just cannot comprehend how the actions of one can affect the many. And so as a result, many people tend to live their lives as if they're an island unto themselves. And here's what I want you to hear me say today, right out of the gate. Please don't miss this. You are not an island. You are not an island. 
Whether you want to admit it or not, your choices and your actions do affect other people, either for good or for bad. And that's one of the big truths we're going to see reflected in our text for today. Now, before we dive in to get started on that, I thought it would be helpful just to take a moment and catch us up. Uh, to remind us of where we are in Genesis because it's been a few weeks since we've been here. And so I just want to get us on the same page, okay? Genesis 18, if you remember back, if you haven't been here, this will help you. But if you remember back in the first part of this chapter, the Lord pays a visit to Abraham along with two angels. And he visits him to reassure him of all of his promises. And these were promises that go back to Genesis chapter 12. Right, God calls Abraham out and he says to him, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you the father of a great nation and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Well, at this point in his life, Abraham had been waiting on those promises for 24 years and he and his wife still had some major problems. Okay. For starters, his wife, Sarah was barren, which means they had no kids. And I think you'll agree, it's kind of hard to father a nation of people without any kids, right? In addition to that, Abraham is now 99 years old. His wife, Sarah, is 90, and people in their age bracket typically aren't having children, okay? And so the Lord comes, and he visits him to personally say to him, look, in a year from now, I'm going to show back up, and Abraham, I'm going to do the impossible. I know this makes no sense to you right now. But I promise I'm going to open the womb of your barren wife at 90 years old and she's going to give birth to a son. And through that son, I'll make good on all my promises. Then the Lord and his angels get up and they start to leave and they start heading toward two wicked cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is where we'll pick it up in the story. Genesis 18, starting in verse 16. Here's what it says. Then the men set out from there. And they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he's promised him. And then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. We'll stop there and talk. So what we're going to learn from today's passage and also next Sunday's passage is this, that the Lord's plan was to destroy these wicked cities. To literally wipe them off the face of the planet as if they never existed. And so we see the Lord saying to himself and what we just read, uh, you know, I probably shouldn't hide from Abraham what I'm getting ready to do. He probably needs to know about my plan to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he gives two reasons for needing to inform him. Uh, Reason number one goes back to the promise I mentioned a moment ago. His promise to use Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. The Lord is basically saying in the text, you know, uh, Abraham, probably good for him to know that these two nations aren't going to experience that blessing. So that's number one. Number two, second reason, goes back to Abraham's responsibility. You see, the God of the universe called him out, chose him. Why? To teach his children and his household to follow the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. 
That phrase, righteousness and justice, it means on a very foundational level to live in accordance with and in obedience to the Word of God. And so it's as if the Lord is saying here, if He's going to teach His children and household to do those things, He should probably know what happens to people who reject them. And so He turns to Abraham and He says, hey dude, we got to have a talk. I need to bring you into the loop on something. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah has been so great, and because their sin is so disgusting and horrific, I'm going to go personally investigate to see if what I've heard is true. Now, here's the question. Did the Lord need to investigate to see if what he heard was true? No. He didn't need to investigate. I mean, as we learned a few weeks ago, God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He sees all things, knows all things, including the very things that go on inside of us. God knew what was going on inside those wicked cities, but he wanted Abraham to know that his judgment of those cities would be based on factual information. This is amazing to me. What what he does in this moment is he actually humbles himself and acts like a mere human being all to comfort and assure Abraham, hey dude, before I do anything, just want you to know, I'm going to go gather all the facts And based on what I find, I will decide what to do next. And I think this act of humility on the Lord's part should comfort us today because it shows us, look at this, that God's judgment is based on facts, not feelings. That God's judgment is based on facts, not feelings. So in other words, God doesn't pour out his judgment on wicked people because he's having a bad day. It's not like God gets out of the bed on the wrong side and he's grumpy and he decides man you know what would make me feel better destroying some wicked people jesus holy spirit find me some sinners to take out all right like that's not the god we serve in fact ezekiel thirty-three eleven tells us that god does not delight in the death of the wicked he doesn't enjoy punishing sinful people but listen punishing sinful people is something god must do when the facts require it And so let me give you some facts on Sodom and Gomorrah to help you understand what I mean. If you've ever heard anything about these two cities, I imagine what you've likely heard is uh, news and information about their sexual sin. Even if you haven't heard anything about these two cities, you probably at least recognize that word Sodom. Uh, The name Sodom is where our English word sodomy comes from. And so you can only imagine what types of sexual behaviors were going on in these two cities But I need you to know today that the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah ran much deeper than sexual sin. You see, the word outcry there in verse 20, it's a word used in the Bible to describe the cries of brutalized people. One commentator that I read this past week, he put it this way. They connote the anguished cry of the oppressed, the agonized plea of the victim for help in the face of some great injustice. In the Bible, these terms are suffused with poignancy and pathos. Those two words just mean suffering and sadness. With moral outrage and soul-stirring passion. The sin of Sodom, then, listen, is heinous moral and social corruption. An arrogant disregard of basic human rights. A cynical insensitivity to the sufferings of others. And we know that's exactly what was going on in these two cities based on what we read in the book of Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel, he's confronting the city of Jerusalem over her own sins. And he's telling her that the reason God's judgment is being poured out on her is because she's guilty of many of the same things that Sodom was guilty of. Here's what he says in 
Chapter 16, verses 49 and 50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Listen, God's response to the social corruption found in Sodom, it should remind us today that God cares about poor, powerless people. That God cares about poor, powerless people. And please hear me, he doesn't only care about them, he cares how we as his people treat them. And you need to understand today, that's not a New Testament concept. Like I know oftentimes when we talk about caring for people in in need, our default is to jump to Jesus in the New Testament, which is right and good and we should because he's our savior and our Lord and our example. But what we cannot miss is that long before Jesus ever showed up in the flesh, this was God's heart. It's always been God's heart. In fact, when you read the Old Testament law, you find God commanding the nation of Israel to care for those in need. Feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, invite in the stranger, defend the oppressed. And then when you get to the prophets, God tells his people, hey, one of the reasons you're suffering judgment right now is because you failed to do those very things. My friends, this is why we as a church take this type of work so seriously. And I'm always fascinated, by the way, when churches like ours take shots for doing so. Um, I went back and forth on whether or not to tell you this, and I just felt the Lord impressing upon me to tell you this, so I'm going to tell you this, okay? I don't know if you realize this or not. But there are evangelical Christians in our world today that attempt to deny the importance of social justice biblically. And their argument is simply this. uh, Hey, you know what? A person's greatest need is their spiritual need. And so we just need to preach the gospel and teach the Bible and stop worrying about all these social issues. And hear me, while I agree wholeheartedly that every person's greatest need is their spiritual need, I cannot for the life of me figure out how you read this book and deny God's concern for human rights and social justice. Okay, the Bible is clear from cover to cover that God expects us as his people to act for those who can't act for themselves, to defend those who can't defend themselves, to speak for those who have no voice. And why do we do this? in recognition that the lives of poor, powerless people possess intrinsic value, all because they've been created by the God of the universe to bear his image rightly in the world. And so hear me today, hear me. As long as I'm your pastor, we're going to keep feeding people, and we're going to keep clothing people, and we're going to keep educating people, and we're going to keep caring for orphans and widows, and we'll keep drilling clean water wells, and we'll keep standing against racism and sexism and all the other isms that exist in our world. And we're going to use all of our resources and and all of our voices to do whatever we can to communicate to people that their lives are valuable to both us and God. Amen? And why? Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Well, it's simple. To help people who are far from God, who feel hopeless and helpless, to understand that there's a God who loves them and wants to be in a relationship with them through his son, Jesus Christ. Man, I could preach on that all day long, but I need to climb down off my soapbox because we still got a lot of the passage to get to, okay? Go back to the text with me, if you will. Verse 22. Moses, the author of Genesis, he continues writing. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? 
Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. And here is a key phrase, key question in the text. If you write in your Bible, underline this. We'll come back to it. He asks the question, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous people in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And he spoke to him again and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said again, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again. But this once, suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So just imagine the scene, okay? The two angels leave, and they start heading towards Sodom and Gomorrah without the Lord, and Abraham is left there with the Lord, standing before him alone. And upon realizing what the Lord is getting ready to do, Abraham begins to plead, (laughs) He says, oh, Lord, you're not really going to do this, are you? Like, you're not really going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked, are you? I mean, come on, what if there are 50 righteous people in those cities down there? I mean, are you going to just kill the righteous so that they fare the same, meet the same fate as the unrighteous? And then he asks that all-important question, shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? My friends, the simple answer to that question is yes. God always does what is just. And God doing what is just, please don't miss this, God doing what is just means that the righteous are saved and the wicked are slayed. That the righteous are saved and the wicked are slayed. And I want to unpack what I mean by that, okay? Uh, This is Gospel 101. If you've never heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, I want you to lean in. It's the greatest news on the planet, okay? Um, If you have heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, I want you to lean in. It's the greatest news on the planet. Should never get old to us. Romans 3.23, the apostle Paul tells us there that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So he's just teaching what we already know, that none of us are perfect. None of us have perfectly lived up to God's moral standard revealed in his word. Uh, None of us have perfectly lived out God's purpose for our lives. Therefore, listen, therefore our lives have failed to give God the honor and glory he rightfully deserves. Now, consequently, as a result of our sin, we are separated from God relationally. Uh, We are dead spiritually. We appear before God as unrighteous, unacceptable people. And ultimately, what we deserve from Him is eternal judgment. And here's the worst news of all. There is nothing we can do about it. There is nothing you can do as a person to free yourself from the punishment or the judgment of God. Why? Because good can't erase bad. 
Good can't erase bad. Think about it like this, if you will. Uh, let's say someone commits murder and they decide to flee the country. And it takes 30 years before their face ever shows up on the FBI's most wanted list. In those 30 years, they completely change their life, right? They clean up their act, they get married, they have kids, they're an upstanding citizen, you know, they're investing in their community, they're giving to charity, their track record over those 30 years, it is clean, spotless. Well, when the FBI finally finds that person and extradites them back to the U.S. and they stand trial and they are found guilty based on the evidence, when they go before the judge to receive the sentence, what's the judge going to say? I don't worry about it. That was 30 years ago. And I see that you have been working really, really hard over the last 30 years to really clean your life up and to do better. And so based on your good actions, we're just going to let that slide. Now, that's not what the judge is going to say at all, right? No, in that moment, justice demands that the murderer be punished despite all of his efforts to clean up his life. And hear me, the same is true when it comes to God. Because God is a just judge, he cannot simply let your sin go. Despite all of your best efforts to fix yourself and to clean up your life, your sin must be punished. Now, here's the really good news. In grace, God has made provision for your punishment through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, 2,000 years ago, out of his love for you, Jesus Christ laid his life down at the cross for your sins. So in other words, he took your punishment and he suffered everything you deserve from God. And the Bible teaches that when you and I put our faith and our trust in him, his person and his work on our behalf, that Jesus restores us back into a right relationship with God the Father. He makes us into righteous people who in the sight of God are now holy and blameless forever. And come on, we learned weeks ago that this is how righteousness works, right? Genesis 15, 6. Do you remember that verse? Have you been here? That verse tells us that Abraham was counted righteous by God because of his, because of his faith. The same is true with us. We're not counted righteous by God because of what we do. We're counted righteous by God because of what we believe. And namely for what we believe about the person and work of Jesus Christ. But here's what all that means on the flip side. If you choose not to believe, you remain unrighteous. You remain stuck in sin. You remain spiritually dead. And you are left to pay for all of your sin on your own. So again, at a very basic level, the gospel shows us that God is just. I say all that to say this. When Abraham goes to God and he pleads for the salvation of Sodom and Gomorrah, he pleads on the basis of God's justice. Not on the basis of God's grace and mercy. He doesn't go to God and say, oh, thank you, God, that you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And and thank you, God, that you're so kind and compassionate. Please don't do this. Withhold from them what they deserve and give them what they don't deserve. It's not what he does. No, instead he comes to God and he says, listen, if there are righteous people in that city, people who've been counted righteous by you because of their faith in you, your very character demands that you save them. God, you cannot slay the righteous with the wicked. And then Abraham continues to plead very boldly, but very humbly. I don't know if you caught this, but as you read the passage, it's almost like you can see his posture before the Lord. (laughs) He comes before the Lord and he says, Okay, I know I asked for 50, and I'm dust and ashes. I'm so insignificant. I shouldn't be asking you for anything. But what if there's 45? And then he keeps pushing. How about 40? 
40? Do I have a 40, right? <laughs> like an auctioneer going in the wrong direction, right? Okay, God, I, I don't want to make you angry, but I just have to know, will you do it for 30? And, and God, how about 20? And then finally he speaks to the Lord and he says, what about 10? If you find just 10 righteous people in those cities, will you save them? And herein lies the heart of God. I'll do it for 10. If I find 10, I will spare Sodom and Gomorrah. What we learn from this exchange is this, and this is the big truth of the text and the big truth of today's message. So if you're taking notes, write this down. What we learn is this, that God's justice saves the righteous and slays the wicked, but spares the wicked for the sake of the righteous. Just write it down. We're going to unpack it, and I'll just let that settle on your hearts and minds for a moment. That God's justice saves the righteous and slays the wicked, but spares the wicked for the sake of the righteous. And I want to make this as practical as I can, okay? We know that in the future, the righteous and the wicked will meet very different fates. See, the Scriptures teach us very clearly that there is coming a day when Jesus Christ is going to return to the earth for a second time, not as a servant, but as a king. And on the day of His return, the righteous will be saved, In other words, we'll experience the fullness of our salvation. We're going to receive brand new resurrected bodies. We're going to be raised up to new life. Uh, This earth, this world that we live on is going to be restored, renewed, renovated, whatever you want to call it. Sin, suffering, and death will be no more. And we as the righteous people of God will live on that new earth with Jesus in the flesh, ruling and reigning as king. And for the rest of eternity, we will experience life in the way it was meant to be. That's what the future holds for the righteous. Now, on the other hand, when that day comes, the day of Christ's return, the wicked will be slayed. I don't know if you realize this, but the righteous are not the only ones who receive new bodies on that day. The Bible teaches that wicked people also receive resurrected bodies from the Lord when he returns. But in those bodies, they will stand trial before King Jesus, the just judge of heaven and earth, and they will be found guilty for rejecting him. And unfortunately, they will be left to pay for all of their own sin throughout the rest of eternity, experiencing in all of its fullness the justice of God. That is what the future holds. But what about now? What about now? Like, how does this truth apply to the present? Well, what the story reveals about the present is simply this. That God, at times, this just God, he will actually spare wicked people for the sake of righteous people. Like, I want you to think about this with me. Back to the story. Here's God going. Again, the Lord saying to Abraham, 10 people is all it's going to take. Just 10. In the midst of judgment, the Lord was ready to show mercy. If I find 10 righteous people in those cities, I'll save them all. You see, in other words, here's another way to think about it. The righteousness of just 10 people was all it was going to take to protect countless numbers of wicked people from the judgment of God, and God was ready and willing to pour out mercy in its place. My friends, this is why it matters so much for us as the people of God to walk in righteousness today in the present. I mean, come on, you know like I know that we are not far from Sodom as a nation, right? I mean, you just have to read the news for about five minutes and you see it. I mean, it's very clear that our culture and our nation today is continuing to ignore God and defy God in the most extreme and horrific ways. 
One of the clearest examples of this recently in the news has been that New York abortion law. Yeah, that allows a mother to murder her unborn baby up until the moment it is born. It's horrific. And I've had people ask me in light of decisions like that, James, why doesn't God just pour out his judgment on our nation? And I don't know all the answers to that question, but part of the answer could be this. There are righteous people here. And at times, the justice of God is willing to spare wicked people for the sake of righteous people. You see, it all goes back to what I talked about at the very beginning of the message. That our choices as as a community, as individuals, as the people of God, can and do impact other people. I mean, just like our sin can affect other people negatively, our righteousness can affect other people positively. It can actually preserve society. Our righteousness as the people of God can prolong the life of nations. It can actually buy wicked people time to repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so I just want to say to you today, we have to understand this. What our nation needs from us right now as the church, as Christians, followers of Jesus, is not our compromise, but our commitment. Like our fellow citizens need us to stand strong in the face of cultural pressure to cave and to abandon God and to instead remain faithful to Him. And listen to me, I know that's not what they want from us. I know that what culture wants from us is to just leave God behind, uh, to shrug Him off, to ignore His way of life, and to applaud the evil they are embracing. And can I tell you what I find so heartbreaking and even infuriating? A lot of Christians and a lot of churches and a lot of church leaders are doing that very thing. I I don't know if you've seen this in the news, but there's a major denomination in our country making some big decisions this week on what to do with issues of marriage and sexuality. And what I find so interesting is that a lot of Christians are making these decisions as if they're doing our nation a favor. They are not. What they're doing by abandoning biblical truths that the church has held to for thousands and thousands of years, what they're doing is the equivalent of throwing helpless people in front of a speeding bus. And no judgment's on the way. Let me help you get out there more quickly. Listen, that is not what wicked people need. What they need from us is our righteousness. Why? Because our righteousness as the people of God may very well be the only thing protecting them from the judgment of God. We have to stay firm. Grace and truth is what it takes. It can't be all one or the other. It's got to be both. They need us to remain faithful. I'll close with this and we'll be done. As we pursue righteousness in our broken world, we must also pursue prayerfulness. As we pursue righteousness in our broken world, we must also pursue prayerfulness. I know how easy it is to get angry and even frustrated by the wickedness we see every day in the world around us, right? And here's the reality. We should be angry and we should be frustrated when we see God ignored and people hurt. I mean, it should frustrate us, rightfully so. But listen, what we cannot do is allow our anger and frustration to keep us off our knees. Are you tracking with me? You see, like Abraham, we have a great responsibility to stand in the gap for sinful people and to love them by pleading with God to save them. And so my encouragement and my challenge to us today is this. Instead of only sitting around and complaining about the evil in the world, start praying against it. You see, I think the enemy would love us to do nothing more than to sit around and complain. Why? Because complaining does nothing 
Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Like some of you, you've been fasting from social media for the last 21 days, haven't you? How many of you have been doing that? Okay, I don't know about you. I've been doing the same thing. I don't think I'm going to get back on for a long time. But some of you are going to jump back on there tomorrow. You know, it's going to hit like 12.01 tonight. You're like firing Facebook back up. (laughs) And can I tell you what's going to happen? Can I tell you? Listen, you're going to be on there for all of about five minutes, and you're going to find yourself frustrated, angered by what you read. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to start complaining, and you're going to start whining, and you're going to start telling other people how frustrated you are. Again, that does nothing. Can I give you some advice? If you decide to fire social media back up, instead of complaining about it, pray through it. Let it serve as your cue to pray. Nobody likes whiners and complainers. And we as the people of God, we don't have time for that. Here's what prayer does. Don't miss this. Prayer, when we pray against it, prayer can actually move the mighty hand of our merciful God to save. That's why we pray. And as we close our time out together today, that's what I want to call us to. I just want to call us to pray. To do what Abraham did And to stand in the gap for our nation, but also to stand in the gap for people that we know personally in our lives who are caught up in sin. See, I have to imagine our boy Abraham, as he was praying for these two cities, that he had an individual on his heart and mind. Uh, His name was Lot. Remember where Lot was living at this point? In, In Sodom. And so maybe as we've talked today, you got some individuals on your heart and mind that you know are standing in the way of God's judgment. One of the greatest things that you can ever do for them is pray for them. And so right now, I just want us together to plead with the Lord to change the hearts of people that we know, to change the hearts of people in our nation, that they might experience his mercy in place of his judgment. So just all over the room, can we bow our heads and close our eyes? I'm going to invite our prayer team to come and to get in their places. And I want to invite you just to begin praying. Maybe you need to pray for your own life and your own heart. Maybe there's sin that you need to repent of. Maybe you've been the follower of Jesus in the room who's been making compromises that you don't need to make. In fear, in pride, in defiance, I don't know. But maybe you just need to lay your compromise before the Lord and say, okay, God, I've realized that My compromise isn't helping anybody. It's actually hurting people. My righteousness is what sinful people need. And just ask him, God, help me to to walk in righteousness. Help me to love sinful people without embracing their sin. Help me to be committed to you without compromising on your truth. And give me what I need to know how, how to interact with people who are far from you on a daily basis. If that's you, just pray that over your life. If you so feel led by the Spirit of God, why don't you just also pray for our nation? Pray for people in your life by name that need God's mercy right now. The heart of God is to save. God always wants to show mercy. And let's ask God to change the hearts of people right now that they might experience his mercy. Just lift your voices up in prayer. Lift your hearts up in prayer. Just ask God to move.
hearts and as many of us are praying and, and you continue to pray, as many as, of, many as uh, of us are praying, I have to imagine that there are other people in this room today uh, who are the ones standing in the way of God's judgment. Like there's never been a point in your life where you have believed the good news of the gospel. Again, this news that says that you're a sinner and that what you deserve is judgment and there's nothing you can do on your own to free you from that, but God in his grace and love toward you has done something on your behalf. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your provision, the one who took judgment for you, so that you could receive mercy and grace from God. Come into a relationship with Him. Have hope and, and life both now and in eternity. And you know right now as you sit in your seat, I need that. That news, I can't explain it, but, but I believe that it's true. If you need to receive the gift of salvation today, right now, wherever you're seated, why don't you just pray in your heart and just say this to God in faith. Just tell Him, God... I admit that I'm a sinner. And I acknowledge that what I deserve from you is judgment. But God, I believe that Jesus took the judgment that was mine. I believe in his death on the cross for me, that he paid for all my sins. I believe in his resurrection from the dead, that he's defeated sin, death, and hell for me forever. And that by trusting in him, I can have new and eternal life. And so God, right now I'm asking you, would you forgive me of all my sins, past, present, and future? Take hold of my life and make me into the person you have created me to be. God, I say yes to Jesus. Listen, with heads still bowed and eyes still closed all over the room, if you just prayed that with me or something like it, I want to ask you to do me a simple favor. Just wherever you're seated, would you just lift a hand to let us know you made that decision? James, that's me. Thank you so much. I see hands going up all over the place already. If you just prayed with me, James, that's me. Just keep your hand up for a moment if you would. Our prayer team has a resource that they want to come and put in your hand. And as soon as you receive it, you can put your hand back down. On the floor, in the balcony. If we haven't gotten to you yet, just throw your hand up real high. James, that's me. Put my faith in Jesus today. If you don't have that resource yet, just again, throw your hand up real high where we can see you. Awesome. God, thank you. Thank you, thank you for being a God who saves. Thank you for being a God of mercy, a God who desires to show grace in place of judgment. And God, we thank you that the ultimate proof of that is seen in Jesus, God, that you gave up your son to make us sons and daughters. And God, I thank you that uh, there are men and women sitting in this room who just experienced that, your salvation, your adoption, that right now, because of their faith in Jesus, they are holy, blameless, and acceptable in your sight. And God, I pray that they would experience your presence in a way that would leave them forever changed, God. Father, we, we lift up together uh, our nation. We lift up together uh, those that we know by name who are far from you and standing in the way of your judgment right now. God, would you change them? 
God, bring our nation and bring individuals to a place of repentance. Help us to see the error of our ways, that we are on a dangerous trajectory right now, Father. And I pray that hearts would change and that mercy would be shown. And God, if you can use us as your people to accomplish that, God, we lay our lives before you and we say we are yours. God, use us in any way you want. We are yours. God, thank you for loving us so deeply. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen, amen.